Welcome to this edition of the ASHA podcast. I'm Fred Wyant with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. We're going to look at cervical cancer through a lens of health equity because there are disparities with the disease, largely around race and ethnicity, but also around geography as some rural areas tend to have higher rates. And as part of our discussion, we're also going to take a look at clinical trials, research studies, evaluating potential new treatment options for cervical cancer, because there's an equity angle there too. A one size fits all approach doesn't work very well. So we'll talk a bit about the importance of diversity in clinical trials and how we might do a better job. And we are very fortunate to have Dr. Denise Lenton join us today. She's a dear friend and colleague of ours. She's a family nurse practitioner who holds a doctor of nursing science degree. And a huge focus of her career in research and clinical practice has been cervical and other HPV cancers, especially prevention and survivorship. So that fits perfectly with what we're talking about today. So that's why she's here. And she's also the leader of the Lafayette, Louisiana chapter of the National Cervical Cancer Coalition, which of course is part of the Ashen family, Dr. Lenton. Thank you so much for taking time to, to join us today. I was glad to be able to talk with you. Thank you so much, Fred, for having me here today. It is always my delight and honor to be able to speak about a topic that I love dearly. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. We, we couldn't be more thrilled. So let me tell you, so just ahead of our conversation, I was looking at some CDC research that examined cervical cancer rates in the US between like 2010 and 2014. And they you know, confirmed that women of color tend to be diagnosed with cervical cancer at later stages when the disease is more advanced and prognosis may be not, not, not quite as good. And the authors also found, as I mentioned earlier, that there was a higher incidence in rural communities too. So I just wanted to get your thoughts as, as a researcher, as an educator, as a clinician, how can we do a better job in caring for communities of colors and patients in rural areas that are just too often diagnosed with these more advanced cancers? You know, it is unfortunate that women are actually being diagnosed with a preventable cancer. And even more appalling is that women are dying from a cancer that is preventable. And as you said before, there are certain minority groups that are at higher risk for the adverse effects of being diagnosed with cervical cancer. And there's a geographic um, issue as well. I have, I'm usually amazed and disappointed rather, or disappointed rather that, women in rural areas and minority women are, tend to be seen as not being interested in health prevention. And we forget that there are a lot of barriers associated with access to health care that they're dealing with. And I think that we really need to take these things into consideration because in rural areas, we tend to have health professional shortage areas as well. So we do not have enough healthcare providers to actually perform pap tests on these ladies mm. so that they can know whether they have the HPV the HPV virus that will cause problems later on if it persists or if there are other abnormalities that are 
occurring in the cervical area that can be addressed before they actually progress to cancer. Additionally, a lot of women do not have health insurance. And then those who do have health insurance, they tend to have to go to work and the clinic hours are usually doing their work hours. So if they need to come to the clinic setting, then they have to take time off from work. So it's important that we think about this too, that we need to look at the hours of operation of our clinic setting where women can actually come to be screened. And then it's also important to remember that although healthcare providers are the ones who are performing these pap tests, we do have the clerical staff who are actually making these appointments. So I think we need to work as, mo as more, we need more of a team effort to make sure that there are not factors that are preventing women from coming to us that we can help them with. Because with healthcare providers, a lot of times they're overbooked with too many patients and then the wait time to be seen by a healthcare provider can be up to six, seven, eight months. And then a lot of things can happen during sure. that interval that can prevent um, women from actually coming. So I think before we begin to label people, it's important that we try to find, be a little bit more empathetic and to find out from them, what can I do to make sure that you can keep your appointment and actually listen to them and assist them in taking care of themselves. You know, you bring up a number of good points there around these barriers. So uh, you mentioned that uh, the clinic hours are open during the day, and a lot of times just getting off work can be a problem. That made me think, well, what about other things like transportation might be an issue for some women, finding childcare, that kind of thing, or, or if they're responsible for other kind of care in their families, they may feel like, you know, it's hard to break away to take care of themselves if they're taking care of other people. So that's, uh, there's just a lot going on there. Um, most definitely, totally agree with you because women tend to be the caregivers. Of course, of course, yeah. They always put everybody else first, you know, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned um, that there's a perception about a lot of these underserved women, maybe they aren't interested in, in, in health pre prevention. And that, you know, I, that triggers something in me. You know, I was going to ask you about, well, what kind of education and outreach do we need with these women? But what kind of education and outreach do we need with their providers? Perhaps we need to coach them up a little bit as well. As a healthcare provider, I do agree with that. And that is one of the reasons I'm happy that I'm a chapter leader because I get to go into the community and not just talk to patients, potential patients, but talk to my nurse practitioner colleagues as well and my physician colleagues, physician assistant colleagues, all my healthcare providers who are a part of that team. I'm able to talk to them and say, this is what women are saying and it's time for us to, to begin to listen to them. Yeah, and, and, and I, I think th that's a key point. We need to listen to them because you touched earlier about the fact that, you know, maybe we need to actually ask these women, what can we do to, to make it easier for you to keep this appointment? You know, rather than just saying your appointment is at nine o'clock on you know, the 15th, just maybe work with them a little more proactively because it just may be something, you know, we may not 
understand just how hard it can be to come in at a, at a specified time. They you may need some flexibility. So uh, that's uh, thank you for that perspective. I think it kind of there needs to be a little bit of give and take here. Um, okay, um, I'm wondering if there's sort of keeping with that theme. Um, is there anything we can do to make the experience? more, just a little more welcoming, or at least a little less intimidating. I mean, this can be, there's a lot of stigma around this. I mean, when you're getting screened for something, quote, down there, you know, a lot, that's embarrassing to a lot, you know, gynecologic care is embarrassing for a lot of women. And, uh, you know, it's really a sensitive area. Uh, any recommendations you have for clinics, for any clinicians listening? Um, what can we do to really make that experience at the clinic a, a, a bit easier for the women? Well, I think that the well, I know that there's a lot more focus now on decision making and having patients be a part of decision making. And I know that if we have a relationship with the patient, they will divulge anything to us and they will allow us to look at anything that will help them to get better. However, because of religious reasons, people's personal experiences with the healthcare environment, they may have particular preferences. You would think that all women would rather be seen by a female healthcare provider, but it is not necessarily so. If you mm. look at qualitative research studies, which I've conducted a few, I've had some women say, I'd rather be seen by a woman because that person knows what I have. And then there are others who say, I'd rather be evaluated by a male. So it's important that in that environment, we have both males and females so that patients can decide which person they would rather um, be seen by. And then, people talk to each other. You know, in marketing, they say we do word of mouth and that. So if there's a healthcare provider who is very gentle with the woman, mm -hmm. then that gets passed around, especially in the rural communities where yeah. people actually talk a lot to each other, then that gets passed around. And if it is positive, then that would be transmitted out there. But then if it's negative, then the woman definitely will not want to come to see you. And if you have a positive, if you have rapport and women see that you care about them, then they will want to come to see you. And guess what? They will bring their friends. They will bring their family members. I've had like three generations of women who have actually seen, and that's a testament to when those women can say, okay, this person cares about me and they are there to help me. Then there are times when the speculum that we use that helps us to actually see the cervix, please do not use the largest speculum that there is. Mm. Try with a smaller one first because the smaller one tends to be a little less painful. And even before you get to that, let the woman know that it's important that you relax because the more relaxed you are, the less 
discomfort you will actually feel. So there's something about psychological preparation before. So it's important to assess how anxious or nervous and this woman is, and then you can take it from there. You can probably hear that I have a very strong Jamaican accent. Sometimes I use this as an icebreaker with the ladies and say, I sound like I just got here. And they will say, yes. And I'll say, I've been here for more than 30 years. And then they laugh. I even use it to my advantage too, to have them think about being in Jamaica on the beach or whatever you can there do you to can. help them to think about being somewhere else and then to have them relaxed. And for first timers who are coming to have their pap smear for the first time, it's so important to take the time to talk to them. And I try to put it in perspective in a positive way and in a kind way. So sometimes I will say, can you imagine a baby actually comes from out there? So this little speculum, you will not have a problem with this little speculum. So I think with time and experience, you learn the little things that you can say to put women at ease so that they can be relaxed so that you can actually do what you need to do and they will return and their friends and family will come back to see you as well. We, we should publish a book from you on Bedside Manor 101. That's excellent. I love that. You know, I've been thinking about that. I think you're in my brain. We need to work on that. I'm very serious, though. Yes. Uh, you know what? You know what? I like it. I think I, I, I think I, we need to write this up as a grant. All right. We'll talk offline. All right. Yes, yes, yes. That's amazing. Yes. Thank you for yes. that. All right. Let me, before we leave this topic, let me ask you one more thing. So HPV, the human papillomavirus, the high-risk types, of course, are what cause virtually all cases of cervical cancer. And so now we're screening for HPV directly with HPV testing. And is that difficult for you as a clinician to have to have a conversation with a woman about HPV? How did I get it? Does that mean somebody's cheated? Oh my God, what is this? It's a, it's a sexually transmitted infection. How do you talk with patients about HPV? You know, in the beginning, when we did not know much about it, I remember in the 1990s and early 2000s, when I had to talk to my patients about it. There was really not that much about the HPV out there. But now that there is a dearth of information about it and its accurate sites that this information can be obtained from, such as National Cervical Cancer Coalition, as well as American Cancer Society. So a lot of times I say to the woman, right now, Let's not think about who cheated or whatever, because if you've had more than one sexual partners, you do not know who you actually got it from. And it is so important that we use, we use our voices and our body languages in such a way that they do not feel guilty, they do not feel less than, or that they did something really horrible because they are already embarrassed about this. So we need to do everything that we can to make them feel at ease and comfortable. So I usually say, remember with this HPV, it could be that you've had it for five, 10, 15 years, and it's just now that it's causing a problem. And to be honest, I kind of get out of 
pointing finger for them to go through their minds and to say, okay, did I get it from this person or did I get it from that person? I tend to be a positive person. Well, I can understand why your patients love you. That is a wonderful approach, you know, no shame, no blame. It's just like, hear the facts and you didn't do anything wrong. So there you go. That's what they need to hear. Yeah. All right. So let me pivot to clinical trials. And uh, they're important, obviously, because without them, we wouldn't be able to evaluate how well and how safely the new medications and new therapies all work. And I know that in general, clinical trials can be kind of a pain to do, right? They can evolve, follow, they're complicated, involve follow-up visits. And not only do patients have to be recruited, but they have to be retained, you know. Um, so first, let me ask you if I'm right in assuming that a number of communities just aren't well represented in clinical trials. So for example, we can just do a better job of including more communities of color. Do you, do you think that's fair to say? Almost definitely. It is, we are in a lot of people who are of color, they are not participating in clinical trials. And the conversations that we've had before regarding geographic locations and the barriers that prevent them from obtaining screening, those are the same barriers that can prevent them from participating in clinical trials. For example, transportation issues, you know, for them to get to where they need to go. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if they're not being screened sufficiently, they may not be aware that there's that they have a condition for which a clinical trial would be appropriate. Um, Definitely. And the thing uh, about it is that remember when you said about recruiting, if there is a lot of mistrust, which there is, we will not get them to participate in there. And then if we actually get them and then they realize that we they cannot trust us or we don't care about them then we will not be able to retain them so i think from the outset before we actually engage or try to recruit people of color to participate in clinical trials, we need to find out from those people in the communities. Mm. It should be a collaborative effort. It's, we shouldn't be trying to get into communities as though we are there to save them. I think it's important that we partner with them. And it is in partnerships that people will feel valued that you want something from me. I'm making a contribution that will help me and help the future as well. So it's a matter of obtaining buy-in by making them feel as though they're a part of a team. Because as you said before, clinical trials are important. And if we do not have people of color being represented, then the clinical trials results, they will not be effective in people of color. Right. So that is what we need to emphasize when we try to recruit participants. We need to let them know that we are doing this so that we can see what works in people like you. Because the beautiful thing thing about advances 
is that we know a lot more about genetics, genomics, and we can get to the root cause of diseases in treating con cervical cancer and other cancers. We do not have to do general things. We can do focus therapy. And that is why we need to have clinical trials because we want to hurt that cancer and not the good cells that are in the body. So if we can get buy-in in that regard, then that would be so very important. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's like a, I think I touched on in, in my introduction. There's really no one size. I mean, a one-size-fits-all approach is not sufficient. We really need to look at everybody and get everybody involved. Um, and it makes the it makes the trials better. It makes the products and the therapies better um, and more university more universally applied. So. And you touched on something, I, you know, you mentioned collaboration. This is, you know, we don't need to go in here and act like we're saving these communities. We need to really recruit and involve them in these studies really is in a collaborative way. And that reminds me of what you mentioned earlier when I was talking about, when I asked you, what can we do to make, you know, practices more welcome, more welcoming to, to these patients? You were like, well, let's ask them, what is it you need? What can we do to help you keep that appointment? This is the same kind of thing. So there's a conversation, there's a dialogue, not rather than a lecture, you know, that kind Definitely. of Definitely. And, you know, I, in the beginning, I spoke about accurate sites such as National Cervical Cancer Society, American Cancer Society, and even Centers for Disease Control. And people can go there to get information. But guess what? A lot of our patients obtain their information from their family and friends. So we need sure. to make sure that those family and friends have accurate information. And usually the pastor who is in that community is a trusted person. So if we can get into the churches too within communities right. and collaborate with them. So those are some key people who we can work with to get buy-in for participation. Yeah, yeah, because they're gatekeepers for a lot, a lot, a lot of communities and a lot of individuals. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, in addition to doing the uh, bedside manner 101 guide, I think we need to do clinical trial recruiting and retention as our 102. <laughs> 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 I'm just the ideas are rolling off. Thank you. That's that's marvelous. Um, yeah, and uh, we have a clinical trials page on NCCC's website, and I'll link to it in the show notes. It has a video explaining how the process works and links to a database where people can search for opportunities in, in their area. Uh, so we will definitely link to that. But yeah, there's just, this is such a rich, ripe discussion. I mean, because there has been, and there still is, a lot of mistrust. And people look at the medical system like, I'm not sure about that. And I mean, that is a very, it's a, it's, a, it's not a physical or obvious barrier, but it's a very real one. And I think some of the things you're talking about are an excellent way to build, to break those barriers down. People feel like they've got some buy-in because they're part of the process. They're not just being co-opted for, for something that somebody else is doing on their own. Yes. And the thing about it is that remember that it is still important to gather together, although we are in the pandemic right now, where we where that is limited. Remember that not everybody has access to technology. 
Right. So we have to do a lot more word of mouth. You know, we can have those right. those focus groups or those big events. People like to eat. <laughs> so <laughs> when it's time together, I know in Louisiana, we do like to get together and eat crawfish and other things that little are done. Gumbo, yeah. little yeah, I'm right. Exactly. So you find out what people like and you bring them together doing what they like to do. And then we make... We, we have a little part of it that's an educational part of it where they can actually be informed because sometimes it's just easier to hear it from somebody else and to be looking at them. And one thing that we didn't talk about is that there are times when for the most part, they say that recruiters should be of the same ethnicity or racial group of those people who they are recruiting. There are times when that is not necessarily true because sometimes in the community, I've had the pleasure of working in an area that I did not live in. And sometimes they say in the rural environment, mm -hmm. everybody knows about everybody's business. And there are mm -hmm. some people who would rather, although it seems okay, there are some people who would rather have it private. And they probably don't want to see you in the supermarket when you've been treating them for certain things. They don't wanna see you out there. So those are two schools of thoughts that we can keep in our mind as well that sometimes you're better off hearing it from a stranger and there are other times it's okay to hear it from your own. So I wanted to add that little tidbit. That's great. Dr. Denise Linton, thank you for taking time to chat with us today. No, I, I've always heard that your patients love you and I, I mean, I can absolutely see why. And to everybody listening to this podcast, come on in a minute. Don't you wish your healthcare provider was like Dr. Denise Hyman? Come on, you're great. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. This, this is wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me. It has been a pleasure being here with you. And I trust that what we've done here today will, will change lives um, for the better. And I, I think so. And I would say stay tuned because of the ideas are percolating, Dr. Denise. <laughs> and thank you to everybody who downloads and listens. We'll have more to come. So check back often. We're online at ashesexualhealth.org and nccc-online.org. All this is linked in the show notes. So don't worry about it. You can just click and you'll, you will find us. Until next time. This is Fred Wyand for ASHA and the National Cervical Cancer Coalition. So long, everybody. Financial support for this podcast has been provided by Seeking Incorporated.